At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. invited to a birthday party and so I went to the roller skating rink for the first time and I discovered that uh, even though athleticism has never been my greatest strong suit uh, I was halfway decent on a pair of skates and you could go really fast and they did speed skaters only which was like really exciting to me and they would play like heavy metal and they would do speed skates not only that uh, there were girls there and they did couple skates right and, and so you have like fast speed uh you have cute girls couple skates uh like you know old uh rock and roll music you know i mean like what more could a middle school boy ask for uh and so i was hooked and and the skating rink was just around uh the uh the, the corner from my house and and so i would go all of the time uh and and i enjoyed uh skating i enjoyed um j- just being there and and meeting people and and, and I had this thought in my mind that um, I will never uh, leave the skating rink. Like, I will, I will always be here, and this is my home. And, and, and I saw myself aging and, and being an old man, you know, still out on the roller rink uh, in my skates. Okay, so I, I wasn't like the other peasants. I had nice skates. I had my own skates. I didn't rent skates, okay? Uh, my, my parents had bought me a very nice pair of skates. And in my mind, I saw myself there as an old man skating, as a middle school boy. That's, that's what I, I believed. Until one day, in walks my older brother, right? The older brother ever cool. Like anything your older brother does is always cool. I still think that about my older brother. He comes in with the skateboard, right? He, he's got long hair, nine inch nails, t-shirt, and a skateboard. And all of a sudden, those skates that I had loved so much and that place that I had longed to be at, dreamed about being at forever, became smaller and smaller and smaller in my mind. And I cared less and less about the roller skating rink. And as soon as I learned to ollie, okay, like I could never get the kickflip down, but but I learned to ollie. And then all of a sudden in my mind, um, this was my life's goal now, to be a professional skateboarder. It's what I wanted to do. I wanted to grow up and be like the greats, like Tony Hawk and those guys. And and so I built my first skateboard ramp out of cinder blocks and and a piece of plywood. And that was it. That's all I ever wanted was to skateboard. I mean, I skated for hours. And listen, it cost me. It cost me to love that thing as uh, it cost me a concussion. Uh, it, it, that's real. It cost me, uh, like, uh, uh, scraped up knees and elbows, but, but I dedicated myself to it because I loved it. And, and the skating rink and all that, that love that I had, it faded away and was replaced with this new love of skateboarding. And in my mind, I planned out my, my, my pro skating career and, and everything that I was going to accomplish. And one day I found that that skateboard also began to grow cobwebs. You see, um, I had gotten a secondhand drum set. 
And so I had no time for skateboarding because I was trying to learn how to play Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana on the drums. And so there was no time for skateboarding anymore. And, and it was my new love, and it, it had replaced the other loves that I had. And, and so that, that was this pattern of this, this thought of me never leaving the skating rink to this thought of me being a professional skateboarder to now uh, you know, my career as a rock and roll drummer touring the globe um, as, as I you know, did drum solos and impressed everyone. And, and, and that was this new love that I had. But even <coughs> that love too was replaced when I met someone. So this was not a thing, but it was a person, and it happened to be uh, the pastor's daughter of the church that we were attending, and her name was Chelsea Yarbrough, and years later I changed her last name, but um, <laughs> it was that new love that I found, and so the, the practice that I had put into drumming, go going to band practice, or that became no longer a love but a chore to do because I, I had replaced that old love um, with a new love. It, it's been really interesting now looking back to see my daughter going through those same phases as she has found toys and things that she loves and now some of those things that she used to love are Again, growing cobwebs in the closet. She used to have these little princesses, and they, they had these dresses that could, like, clip on. And, and she had, like, all of the princesses and all of the dresses, and you could change them out, and she would play with them for hours and hours. And she had to have all of them, and now they don't exist anymore. They're, like, I think we threw them away because she refuses to play with them. But now, now it's Shopkins. And if you don't know what a Shopkin is, I don't either. My daughter's explained it to me. <laughs> And I still don't understand. Um, and 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 she's she carries around this American Girl doll. It's her. It's her. It goes everywhere with her. As a matter of fact, they're wearing the same outfit today. If you get a chance to see it, be careful. The cuteness might crush you. Um, <laughs> and so it, this week, it was amazing. She said to to me and my wife. She said, "You know, Daddy, I will always love Jackie, and I will always play with her." And as a loving father, I looked her in the face and said, absolutely not. <laughs> One day, you won't care about Jackie at all, and she will be in the bottom of your closet before we throw her away. That's the truth. Amen. Now, why do I say all that? I say all that to say this. Love is overcome by a greater love. So, so how do we move from one love to another? Is it just some type of mysterious uh, transition? Is it some type of mysterious gear shifting thing? Uh, you, you've heard someone say this, uh, the heart wants what the heart wants. Implied in that statement is that the transition that happens in your heart is simply mysterious and cannot be understood. Right? It's just, you just, you love what you love and you love who you love and, and there's nothing that can change that. Well, I beg to differ. What changes the love of your heart is a greater love. What displaces a love deep within your heart, what can displace it is, is essentially a greater love. This has not only been true for things such as skateboards and drums, uh, it has also been true for very destructive patterns in my life. 
as, as I have seen um, what God has done in my life and how he has uh, redirected, course corrected me away from destructive patterns in my life, it has been by replacing those loves with a new love. As, as a young man, as I ran away from the church and went down destructive, dark, evil paths uh, filled with drugs and uh, sex and uh, alcohol, what changed me or what redirected that path, because what I loved was the escape that I felt in those things. That's what I love, and so that's why I went down those paths to escape those. I loved the escape of it, and so what Jesus did is he entered into my heart a new love. He gave me a greater love. Listen, friends, it was not my iron will that pulled me away from that path. And, and so as, as, as we talk about or we think about these type of destructive patterns that we often find ourselves in, the, the trick to getting away from a destructive pattern or a destructive habit is not iron will. It's not trying harder and doing better. Uh, rather, it is replacing the love of that destructive pattern with a, a love that is more beautiful, something more lovely, something more monumental. Write this down. All of the human experience can be summed up in this way. A battle for the affections of your heart. A battle for the affections of your heart. The question is this. What do you love? I love affirmation, don't you? I love affirmation. I, I love being patted on the back and for people to say we appreciate I appreciate you. I thank you for your service. Appreciate your sacrifice. I love affirmation. I love success. What is it that your heart ultimately loves? Because we are finding ourselves as humans in a battle for the ultimate affection of the human heart. If it's anything other than Jesus, you will be led down a destructive path. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Wait, wait a second. I mean, you're telling me that if I ultimately love my family more than I love Jesus, that that's ultimately going to lead me down a destructive path? Absolutely. Even good things, if we love them ultimately more than we love Jesus, will lead us down destructive paths. And so what I'm saying is the entirety of the human experience is about, it's a battle for the affections of the human heart. There are men in this room who, who are struggling with uh, wanting to be liked, wanting to be accepted. There are women in this room who, who are ultimately saying, if other people will tell me that I'm beautiful, I will feel beautiful. That is an affection of the heart. I want affirmation. I want people to tell me they love me. I want people to tell me that I'm beautiful. I want people to tell me that they think I'm smart or nice. And that is your heart's affection being pulled towards affirmation. That's your heart's affection. So some of us have this drive to, to build and create and succeed and be seen as successful. That's your heart's affection being pulled in that direction. All of the human experience is a battle for the heart's affection. 
for everyone in this room, there are things that hold our heart's affection that are silly. They're silly. They're silly. I, I, found, I found this in, in my heart uh, uh, about a, two years ago. In my mind, uh, but what, what I had kind of, the, the air that I had breathed in told me this. You need to be about the McDonald name. It's my last name, right? You, you need to leave a legacy, right? This, this was something that, that was taught to me. But I had two girls, and so the lasting legacy name is kind of over for me because I had two girls. And, and there was this part of me that was sad about that, right? And, and so I'm, as I'm saying it out loud, it feels so silly to say out loud, but it was there in my heart. To say, who cares about my name? I'm about the name of Jesus. Why am I upset about this? Who cares about my name and my legacy? It's about Jesus and his fame and his name and his glory. But there was something in my heart that loved that, that wanted that, that was attaching to that, that was leading me to something that was silly, right? There are things that we hang on to in love. There are loves that are deep inside of our heart that ultimately are just silly. Some are destructive, some are harmful, some are silly. So, we must be rescued from loves in our heart that are destructive. And the only way that you can be rescued is by replacing that love with a greater love. Question, how can you replace one love with a greater love? When you see something that is more lovely, it is only when we behold him that we see something more lovely. It is only when we behold it. Because listen, family is a great thing. Success is a great thing. Affirmation is a great thing. Those are great things. But we need something more lovely than those things. We need something more powerful than affirmation. Listen, isn't affirmation powerful? Yes. Encouragement is powerful. Affirmation is powerful. Success is powerful. Right? Success is very powerful. But if we're going to replace those loves in our heart, we need something um, more lovely than those things. We need something more powerful than those things. And it is only when we behold the God-man Jesus Christ in his unveiled glory, it's only when we see him for who he is, it's only when we understand the depths and the riches and the fullness of what he has done that all of those other loves fade in comparison. So we must see him. We must see him. So listen, here is what we're doing today. Uh, it's not brain surgery, but it's just as difficult. It's heart surgery. That, that's what we're attempting to do today is, is ask, what is the ruling love of my heart? I'll be honest with you. I've been contemplating that question all week long, and it's very difficult. Because the, the, the heart is wicked and deceitful and often confusing. But we must ask the question. And we must dig down deep and say, what is the ruling love of my heart? Is it affirmation? Is it success? Is it family? Is it escaping through pornography and drugs and alcohol? Or is it King Jesus, the one who is most lovely? So listen, 
the goal, okay? The goal is that your heart's affection would be stirred by the glory of Christ and that it would transform you in extremely practical ways. I, I, want, to, I want us to look at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. This, I, I feel so inadequate to preach this text, to really roll out what's actually going on here. Jesus um, pulling back the veil on his full divinity and showing it to these disciples. I, I, I struggle. I, I think anyone is going to struggle. I think Mark himself, um, I think as the disciples told it, struggle with human words to describe what they saw. But I hope by um, showing you in this text the Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, um, that your affections will be stirred and that any other loves in your heart will fade in comparison when you see this God-man. And that as your heart's affections are stirred, it will move you to real intangible changes, practical application in your life. Because whatever it is that we truly love, we sacrifice for simple principle so when we see Jesus more lovely than the other things in our life we devote ourselves more to him so um, to the text the disciples have been understandably uh, confused uh, Jesus has revealed to them and shown them and Peter has realized that Jesus is the Messiah the problem is their concept of Messiah is not this Messiah their concept of Messiah is a ruling conquering king who's going to come with a sword uh, who's going to cut the heads off of all of the Romans free them from Roman rule they're going to set up a Jewish nationalistic state there in Jerusalem and have a big Jewish party Jesus comes as the Messiah. He truly is the Messiah, but he comes not as the conquering king, but as the suffering servant. Um, he is the king who wears a crown. It's just a crown of thorns. He is the king who enters uh, with, with great triumph, but he doesn't do it on a massive stallion. Um, he does it on a little donkey. Um, so he is the conquering king. He's just going to conquer in a way that they're not comfortable with. He conquers through suffering. He conquers through death. He conquers through cross. And they're, they're understandably a little uh, mind-blown at this prospect. And if they thought that their minds were blown uh, at that concept, wait till we get to the transfiguration. Verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, I often think, and, and maybe you think the same thing, how cool would it be to have been in the shoes of the disciples, right? Being able to be there and go around with Jesus and see the miracles and experience everything. How cool would that be? It would be really cool, and it would be very, very confusing and frustrating. Because of statements just like this. Okay, you're standing there talking with Jesus. Jesus looks and says, truly, truly, uh, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Anyone understand what that means, right? You, you, you can see the disciples just like looking at each other going, what? 
I mean, the, the first part of it, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. Some of them are not going to die. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them are not going to die until they see something. Okay, what's the thing that they see? Well, it's the kingdom of God come in power. If you've been following along and you understand this, that the concept or the theological concept of the kingdom is incredibly nuanced. So they would be asking this question, by kingdom of God, what do you mean? Okay, uh, does Jesus here mean that he's going to take some of them on a field trip to heaven? <laughs> is it heaven the kingdom of God? Absolutely, it is. Um, so is he going to take some of them on a field trip to heaven? Is that what he means? Well, no, that's not what he means because he doesn't take them on a field trip to heaven. Not these guys anyway. So does he mean that um, some of them are going to be alive when his final kingdom, his final return, that is the, isn't that the kingdom of God come in power? When on that great last final day, when the trumpet sounds, clouds are rolled back, uh, all things are made new, no more crying, no more sin, no more shame, no more suffering. Isn't that the kingdom of God come in power? Yes. So is that what Jesus means here? Well, no, it, it can't be because the disciples are dead. And it hasn't happened yet. So any okay. So if you land on an interpretation uh, that makes Jesus wrong, uh, you're wrong. Okay. So 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 here we can't interpret the text that way because that would mean Jesus is wrong and Jesus isn't wrong. So that means you're wrong or I'm wrong. So so no, that's that's not what he means. And so again, they're as confused as we all are right now. The disciples would have been doubly confused, and we, you know. So truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Here's the truth. The truth is, he is talking about the revelation of the fullness of his deity. He is going to show them the kingdom in power by showing them the unveiled part of himself. Jesus is the kingdom. That's the thing. Okay, so he says you're going to see the kingdom in power. Is he, is he looking very powerful right now? I mean, he looks like a regular dude. So, so if you saw, in all the paintings that we ever see, uh, Jesus is the glowy one wearing white. Okay, But, but in reality, if, if the 12 disciples plus Jesus came into town to perform miracles or to, you know, to preach, they would have been, okay, which, which one is he? Which, which one is Jesus? Because he looked like a normal dude. And so what he's doing here is he's pulling back the veil and showing them the fullness of his deity. You see, Jesus is the kingdom. Where the king is, there is the kingdom. This is precisely why Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus spoke that to the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, meaning that he himself is the kingdom. Again, the idea of the theological concept of the kingdom is a very nuanced idea. The kingdom is where God rules. God rules in the hearts of man. Uh, Jesus himself is the kingdom. Heaven is the kingdom. And then there is the final kingdom when Jesus returns in the end. So this is what Jesus is saying. Some of you guys standing here are going to see me transfigured before you die. Verses 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
So the reason that we're landing on that interpretation for verse 1 is precisely verse 2. Mark says, after six days. Now, uh, this is the fast-paced gospel of Mark. Mark likes to use the word immediately. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And he doesn't really slow down to really give us timelines. The reason that he's telling us this is, okay, he's saying this is six days after Jesus said what he said in verse 1. So Jesus in verse 1 says, hey, some of you are going to see the kingdom come in power. And then six days later, he took some of them, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain and was transfigured before them. So, so he's connecting, uh, Mark is connecting verses 1, 2 verses 2 and 3. Okay, so, so Mark wants us to know that this happened six days later. Peter, James, and John, this is certainly some of them and not all of them, led them up a high mountain. Uh, Mark does not tell us what mountain this is, but the predominant mountain in the Caesarea Philippi area would have been Mount Hermon. We can make a guess. That's where they are. Look back at the text. This is astonishing. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Sometimes I kind of want to scream at Mark. (laughs) Now, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so I probably shouldn't do that. But I kind of want some more details. As a guy who doesn't really care much about details, I am eager to have more details. And he was transfigured. What do you mean he was transfigured? Like, how did it happen? Like, what, what went on? Tell us more, Mark. We're, we're dying to know. But in the shortest and briefest little section, and he was transfigured before them. Period, paragraph, done. Mark's brevity leaves me reeling with questions. How did it happen? Did it start off like a light glow and then move on to, like, full-blown sun status? Or was it like a light switch? Like, he's just standing there, and then, boom, he's, like, radiant, like radiant white light shining. I mean, what, what's really going on? We get a little more information in Luke's account tells us that they were heavy with sleep. Um, so they've climbed up this mountain. We're assuming it's nighttime, uh, which again makes the light even brighter, but they climbed up this mountain and they're totally exhausted, like totally tired. And they're kind of like heavy with sleep, half asleep. And then all of a sudden there is Jesus in unveiled glory, bright white. It, it says that his clothes were, were uh, whiter than anyone could bleach them, showing that um, he, he didn't just do like an outfit change. You know, like they went to sleep, he puts on a really white robe and pops out, da 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 You know, it's, that's not what's happening at all. Rather, his clothes are whiter than any human could make them, showing that this is a divine occurrence. Yeah. God has made this happen. He is putting on display uh, his purity through bright white light and his power uh, through this thing that's happened. I mean, so so again, did did like one of them wake up and see what was going on? I mean, like nudge the others and what did they say? And, you know, all it says that he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is where we get our our word metamorphosis. So so he he changes. But. To be clear, Jesus' nature is not changing. It is just being revealed. This is not where Jesus becomes God. That's the incorrect or or wrong view of this text. Jesus has always been fully God. But what is happening here is that the veil, he has veiled himself in flesh, in humanity. He has covered the, the fullness of who he is, and the veil is being 
pulled back. You see, Jesus is one person and two natures. Jesus is one person in the sense that he thinks, acts, feels. He is a person, yet he has two natures. One is a human nature. The other one is a God nature. This is the theological term known as the hypostatic union. Write that word down and impress your friends with it. Now, his clothes become radiant. Matthew and Luke's account tell us that his face shines like the sun. Matthew 17, 2 and Luke 9, 29. Um, this sight would have been incredible, just incredible, uh, unimaginable, unexplainable. Uh, we're unable to capture it in human words. This is how beautiful and glorious this is. Um, I, I once went um, snowboarding uh, on Sugar Mountain in, uh, I think it's North Carolina, and I remember stepping out of the, the car and, and going out, and everything was bright white, covered in snow, and it, it literally hurt your eyes. You, you, know, you almost wanted to close them because everything was so bright, white, and intense. It, it like was physically oppressive. It was so bright and white and, and just hard to even keep your eyes open. Here's what I want us to see. In Exodus chapter 34, so back in the Old Testament, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. When Moses comes down off of the mountain, the people see Moses' face, and it's, it's shining. And, and, and the people are kind of freaked out by him, and they make him put on this veil because they, they're freaked out by what's going on. You see, the difference here is Moses was reflecting the light. Moses had met with God, and, and then he went down the mountain, and Moses was reflecting the light of God onto the people like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But here, Jesus himself is the source of the bright, shining light, showing that he is fully God. We serve a radiant, beautiful, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. This mighty and powerful God comes near to us and loves us and cherishes us. Get this picture in your mind. The bright white light is a picture of the holy purity of God. The purity. And he comes near to us. Unpure, unclean, damaged, soiled, dirty. The bright, white, radiant light of God, the pure light of God reaches down to where we are. Are you shocked by that? Are you stirred by that to say, God, I, I don't deserve this. I can't believe that you would come near to someone like me. As holy as you are, as beautiful as you are, as glorious as you are, coming near to someone like me, let the affections of your heart be stirred this morning. His shining bright light because of his purity, all the purity he possesses, yet he reaches down and touches the likes of us. He is the God who transcends time and space because he rules over all of eternity, yet he comes to where we are. Praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. Amen, amen. If you're taking notes, jot this down. We should be shocked each day in a brand new way at the scandalous love of Jesus. Every, this should be shocking for us every day. Wake up in the morning, eyes open, I'm shocked. Every day, 
and it should do it in new ways each day as we discover the depths of our human depravity. <laughs> I, I discover new and terrible things about myself all the time. <laughs> right? Uh, maybe I'm alone. <laughs> and as I discover new and terrible things that are still lurking in my heart, I become more and more shocked at the grace and the scandalous nature of the love of God which he has poured out onto me. He forgives and forgives and forgives. And as I discover new and terrible things in my heart, I go, oh, he could never forgive that. That's too scandalous. It's too gross. It's too dirty. It's too dark. And Jesus kicks in the door and says, no, I will love you. I will forgive you. It's scandalous. And we should be shocked. We should be shocked. If things weren't crazy enough, it gets even crazier for the disciples. Half asleep, one eye open, Jesus, bright white, shining light. Boom. How do you like that for a wake-up call? Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. <laughs> I'm like... There you are, half asleep on the mountain, boom. Uh, Jesus turns into this bright white, shining light. You sit up and look, and you're totally freaked out, and boom, there's Elijah and Moses hanging out, talking. What? Now, again, the brevity of Mark's account leaves us reeling. How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Text doesn't tell us. Um, did they overhear them talking and Jesus is like, yeah, Elijah, I, you know, awesome. You know, so like they're using each other's names and that's how they figured it out. Was this a, uh, the veil of God's glory is so far pulled back that they just kind of supernaturally and spiritually know that that's who uh, Jesus is talking with. Again, we don't know, but here they are, all three of them on top of the mountain talking and the disciples are there to see What's going on? Here is what we do know. Moses, the one whom God had given the law, stands before the transfigured Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. Elijah, the greatest prophet, stands with Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Both Elijah and Moses are Israel's deliverers, and they're standing with the great deliverer. So, so Moses is the one who, you know, uh, uh, let my people go. He's that guy. So he's the one who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He delivers them and takes them to a new land to be a new people. And you see, Jesus is the one who delivers us out of bondage so, so that we can find a new land, home in him, and we can be a new people, the church. This is, this is uh, Jesus being foreshadowed in Moses, and there stands Moses with Jesus, the same way Elijah. Elijah is the dude um, who defeated the prophets of Baal. He, he crushes the idols of their hearts and, and puts in place the worship of the one true God. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us as he comes to rescue us. He crushes the idols of our hearts and restores right worship to the one true Yahweh God. So there stands Moses. There stands Elijah. Um, Moses being the one who is the representation of the law. Jesus, the great fulfillment of the law. Elijah, the great prophet of God. There is Jesus, the ultimate prophet of God. All three great deliverers. Jesus being the greatest deliverer who delivers us through the cross. This is a scene that is glorious and beautiful. That's right. That's right. If, 
if we're trying to really do heart surgery and remove out of our hearts loves that should not be there, loves that are destructive for us, let us get a view of this, O oh Lord. Amen. If you're taking notes, jot this down. We should be shocked each day in a brand new way at the redeeming love of Jesus. The redeeming love. There stands Moses, the redeemer. There stands Elijah, the redeemer. There stands Jesus, the ultimate redeemer. And as we look at this picture, we should be shocked each day in a brand new way at the redeeming love of Jesus. You, I, I, again, we, we're discovering, aren't we, new and terrible things about ourselves each day. And Jesus says, yep, I'll take that. And we say, no, no, Lord, this is dark and terrible. And Jesus says, yep, I'll take it and I'll redeem it. I'll take it and I'll redeem it. I'll take it and I'll change it. Your hurts, your habits, your hang-ups, yep, I'll take those. And we go, no, Lord, they're too dark and terrible. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to take them from you and I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to make them beautiful. I take broken things and I make them lovely. That's what Jesus does. We need to be shocked each day as we wake up and we're able to love and serve and give to our family, to our local church. The only way that we're able to do any of that is because Jesus has redeemed us. Any, listen, anything beautiful, good, and lovely that you ever do is because Jesus has taken a broken sinner like you and has redeemed you to that work. Amen. 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 <laughs> Let's take a look and see what happens next. Peter, my God, you got to check this guy out. Okay. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Understatement of the century. <laughs> and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. Now, here's a good rule of thumb. If you don't know what to say, be quiet. Right? Don't say anything at all. Okay. In general, I think people should talk less altogether. Now, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Okay, so... Some people, when you get in awkward or scary situations, um, some people are really quiet. Um, other people just nervously talk, right? That's okay. Some of you do that, right? So you're in a, in a scary or awkward situation, and you just nervously start talking. That, that's, that's kind of what's happening here. Peter, I mean, again, this is an unimaginable, hard to describe by human words, seeing that they're seeing, the transfiguration of, oh, yeah, and Moses and Elijah are there. Um, and so, the, you know, Peter's like, oh, uh, you know, nobody's saying anything, you know, bright, white, shining light. There's Moses and Elijah. Uh, 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 we're going to make tents. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the best he could do. That's the, that's the best he could come up with. I'm sure I probably couldn't come up with anything at all. Now, problem number one. The problem is you can't build God a house. God, you know, there, there again, his God nature, his Godness is on display. And he goes, I'm going to build you a house. The problem is you can't build a God a house because 
uh, what literal wood and stone structure could really contain God. It's, it's like, here you go, God, I did this for you and your friends. You're welcome. You know, I'm, I'm going to build you a tent. Well, that's silly because you can't build God a tent. Number two, Peter missed the reality that God's tabernacle or God's tent or God's dwelling, dwelling place is standing right in front of them. God didn't need a dwelling place or a tent because God had come to dwell in the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, it says this clearly and plainly in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt is the exact same word as tent, right? This is tent or tabernacle or dwelling. John here says that the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us. That Jesus himself is the tent. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. He doesn't need for one to be built. It, it seems as if Peter is trying to preserve this moment, right? And, and can you blame him? Jesus, an unveiled deity, uh, plus Moses and Elijah are there. I mean, wouldn't you want to hang out for a while? I mean, I've got a list of questions as long as my arm that I want to ask. Yeah, I want to hang out, and so let's build some houses. Let's build some structures um, for, for these guys so we can stay. But what he missed is that he didn't need to preserve that moment because Jesus was going to continue to be with him. Jesus would go with him. Jesus would stay with him. Jesus was going to preserve him. Not just the moment. Yeah. We should be shocked each day in a brand new way at the preserving love of Jesus. He didn't need to say, okay, here we go. Let's 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 stay right here. Let's stay on the mountaintop. He didn't need to preserve that moment because Jesus was going to preserve him. Jesus is the one who is going to hang on to him. You guys know what happens to Peter, right? When the end finally comes and Jesus' cross is looming there, Peter denies him. Again and again, Peter denies him. And yet the love of Jesus preserves Peter. Peter didn't need to preserve the experience with Jesus because Jesus was going to preserve Peter. Friends, how, how often do we deny Christ in our hearts, in front of our friends and family? How often do we get that pull and that tug to speak up, to share Christ, yet we keep it to ourselves? It would be too awkward. It would be too dangerous. It would be too socially risky to bring up the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus at this moment. I'll just, I'll do it some other time. But it is the love of Jesus that preserves us. It is not that we are so awesome that Jesus insists on keeping us on his team. But it is the love of Jesus. Again, this is what stirs our affection and comes in. And as we realize, I've been loving this thing, whatever it is, more than I love Jesus. Jesus has said to us, and I've still been hanging on to you. When you have refused to love me, I have refused to let you go. Praise him.
Jesus unveiled, bright white, shining light. Don't forget, Moses and Elijah are there. If it couldn't ratchet up another notch, we would understand, but it does. <laughs> and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Right. It just, it just keeps like ratcheting up and up and up. And you, I mean, it's again, it's hard to in human words and human language, which is limited, explain the gravity and the immenseness of what is what is occurring here and what's really taking place. The unveiled uh, deity of Jesus, <coughs> Moses, Elijah, a giant cloud swoops in. So uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, a, a, when a cloud is there, it, it's the idea of the presence of God himself. So this cloud uh, swoops in, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. I think this was specifically to Peter. Listen to him. Uh, he stopped talking. This cloud comes and is there. Uh, the, the voice, uh, God the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved son. This is God the Father speaking directly to the disciples, letting them know who Jesus is. Right? If, if you have come to know the truth of who Jesus is, it is because it has been revealed to you. You did not seek it out. You did not figure it out. You are not part of some special elite club. You got in because God let you in. If you have seen Jesus' divine grace, it is because his divine grace has been poured out on you. This is the foundation for our heart's affection for God. He first loved us. They get the cloud and the voice comes, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We, if, if we're putting in perspective what, what has been happening, they're really struggling with the idea that Jesus has to go to the cross and die. Well, this is God the Father saying, hey, listen to him specifically about that, specifically about how the gospel narrative is going to play out. Listen to him. But this is my beloved son. The, the deity of God was revealed to them. God the Father speaks to them and backs it up. Again, they're not part of some special elite club. They, they didn't um, you know, perform great on their theological <laughs> exam, and that's why they got let into the discipleship program. That's not how this went. They, they get this beautiful revelation and picture because Jesus shows it to them, because God the Father reveals it to them. It has nothing to do with them. In the broader scope of the story, they have been telling Jesus that he should not have to suffer because he is the Messiah. But this is the affirmation of God from the Father that this is his divine plan in the redemptive historical narrative. That Christ must suffer and die and be risen from the dead. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As quickly as everything had went down and as quickly as um, Moses and Elijah had appeared and as quickly as Jesus' light shone out, it was all gone in a moment. Astonishing. What is even more astonishing is that they saw Jesus only. Listen to this. 
Jesus stays on earth and carries on with his mission. He does not escape with his companions up into the heavens. He keeps his face set towards the cross out of love for his children. Well, you think he couldn't have hitched a ride with Moses and Elijah? You, you, you think that he couldn't have got out of there? We know that even hanging on the cross, he could have called for legions of angels to come and wipe everyone off the face of the planet if he wanted to. He, he didn't have to endure any suffering, yet out of love for you, because he loves you, he suffered for you. Write this down. As we meditate on God's affection, it stirs ours. Listen, friends, we, we must meditate on this affection. We must, we must look at this picture of the transfiguration of Christ, of Jesus in power, in power. Yes. Meaning, listen, power enough not to suffer if he didn't want to. That's how powerful he is. He didn't have to suffer for you, yet he does. And when, and when you really meditate, when you really think about that, what that does is that it stirs your affection for him and it allows you to push away those other destructive affections. The goal of being shocked each day in a brand new way at the love of Jesus is that we would meditate on it. We would read of it. We would speak of it. We would think of it. We would talk about it. Oh, I want to be changed and I want you to be changed. Right? We would say, well, the problem is humans don't change. Or do they? Friends, here's the best news. Humans can and do change. And here's how they do it. They do it by replacing a weaker, insignificant love with a greater love. But by taking something that's lowly and not beautiful and replacing with something that is beautiful and glorious. By taking something like the the escapism of drugs and alcohol and pornography and (coughs) replacing that with the beauty of Jesus. Right? That's how we change. By taking something as, as silly as wanting to be liked at your job and replacing that with something grander and more beautiful and more glorious, like a picture of the transfigured Christ who is so powerful he doesn't have to suffer, yet he does suffer in our place for our sins. That's how, that's how people change. Again, why does Jesus show them this? Because he wants them to change. He wants them to take up their cross. That's what he just got done telling them. Okay, I want you guys to take up your cross. They're saying, no way, impossible. We will never do that. They, they found themselves in a place where they, they believed they couldn't change. Jesus shows them this glorious picture in order to help them change. You see, the truth is our hearts love comfort more than suffering. So what can replace a heart's affection for comfort? A greater affection. Show them a greater glory than comfort. Is money lovely to you? Is pleasure lovely to you? Is acceptance lovely to you? Is success lovely to you? Are those the desires of your heart? Do you believe that you will be ultimately fulfilled if only you could have a family or a spouse or another child? Let all of those lower things be replaced by the greater and more lovely thing. Let's look at this last section quickly and then I'll be out of your hair. And as they were coming down for the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This has been a reoccurring theme in the Gospel of Mark to where Jesus has done this amazing thing and then told people not to tell. 
You see, Jesus does not want people going around talking about the miracles because the miracles are not the main point. Uh, Jesus does not want them going around telling people that they got to hang out with Moses and Elijah because that's not the main point. That's not the main point at all. He wants them to wait until his death, his burial, and his resurrection because that's the main point. Again, these guys see the picture, but if you remember from our previous text, they see it like a man walking around like a tree. They see the picture, but it's not so clear yet. So he's telling them to wait. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that they should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You can imagine another point where the disciples go, huh? (laughs) Huh? The question that they ask is an understandable question. The, the, the question is, uh, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? It's an understandable question because these guys know their Old Testament way better than you or me. It's an understandable question because in Malachi 4, verse 5, says this. This is the Old Testament, guys. Listen. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, so the scribes have been saying that. The disciples know that. The Messiah is there. The disciples know that much. Um, But before the Messiah inaugurates the kingdom, uh, Elijah is supposed to come. And so they're like, where's Elijah? Was that that the coming of Elijah that we just saw? So it's an understandable question. Jesus moves on to affirm that that is correct. Okay, So look back at the text. And they ask him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So, yes, you guys are right. The scribes are right. Elijah does come first. And, okay, see that and there? And how is it written? So he wants to amend what they're thinking. He's adding a caveat to the fact that Elijah is going to come. Yes, Elijah is going to come, and I've got something else. What is that something else? What is the caveat here? that Jesus is wanting to add. And how is it written, the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Elijah comes, the Messiah comes, and in their mind, what happens next? Israel's domination of the entire globe. Military might and domination. Again, Jesus is reaffirming that is not the way of this Messiah. I have come as servant to suffer. That's That's why I am here. What Jesus is doing here is he is taking them and saying, yes, absolutely, uh, Elijah is going to come. Now, Elijah had already come, and they had done to him what they wished. What in the world does that mean? Well, the picture of Elijah here is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. So the picture of Elijah is in John the Baptist, and they had done to him what they wished. What did they wish to do to John the Baptist? Well, they cut off his head. Again, reminding the disciples that the way of Christianity, the way of following Jesus, is a way of suffering. And he reminds them, I am the suffering servant. Is he the mighty conquering king? 
Yes, absolutely. And he is also the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 1 says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we might look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men have hidden their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Praise him. He says, yes, I'm coming in power as the conquering king, but I'm also the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53. If you're writing notes, jot this down. We should be shocked each day in a brand new way at the sacrificial love of Jesus. This should stir our affection to know that Jesus, this glorious Jesus, is with us and loves us and sacrificed his body, his shed blood for us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. This word is transfigured we like christ was transfigured each day day by day are being transformed are or transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit as a result of beholding the transfiguration we are transfigured as a result of seeing his glory we are transformed today here's the last thing i'm going to say to you and it's time for you to do some heart work here it is today I have seen that ultimately I am loving blank, and it's silly. Friends, do the hard work to fill in the blank. Today I have seen that ultimately I am loving blank, and it's silly. My prayer is that I would see Jesus infinitely more lovely as a means for my heart's affections to be rescued. I challenge you this morning to fill in that blank and pray that prayer. Let us go to the Lord now. Lord, I said at the beginning of this, we're not doing brain surgery. We're doing something a little more complicated. We're doing heart surgery. 
I pray for a sense of honesty to overwhelm our hearts, a sense of clarity so that we might see where our true loves really are. I pray that those things that we are loving that are silly and are lowly and are beneath you would come out in shining light in the light of your unveiled transfiguration may that same light shine in our hearts and show us the loves that we have that are destructive the loves that we have that are silly Lord would you send your spirit to replace those lowly loves with a picture of you that is glorious and large and looming and beautiful replace those smaller loves with a greater love, a love for you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.